This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Our guy today, we've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Titus Kennedy. So he is a field archaeologist, and he has been involved in excavations and survey projects at several archaeological sites in biblical lands, including directing and supervising multiple projects spanning the Bronze Age through the Byzantine period. So his archaeological interests include biblical archaeology, the interplay between ancient documents and the archaeological record, experimental archaeology, ancient demography, and the similarities uh, between cultures and antiquity. And he's done a whole lot in all these different areas, and we're not even going to be able scratch the surface on all of it today, but he's also a research fellow at the Discovery Institute, and he teaches as an adjunct professor at Biola University and has been a consultant, writer, and guide for history and archaeology documentaries and curricula. And um, the thing, I think I said documentaries. I meant documentaries, guys. You know, it's just kind of one of those things. Sometimes when you say things out loud, you sound stupid, but he's also the author of two different books. So there's Unearthing the Bible. So that's a book that he wrote in 2020, and then Excavating the Evidence for Jesus. This was a book that he wrote in 2022. And guys, we get into both of those things here in this interview. But, you know, he's the first archaeologist I think I've ever talked to in my entire life. So we talked to him about that. You know, what made him want to get into archaeology? You know, is it because of the Indiana Jones films and all that? Or kind of what are the different misperceptions and common misperceptions inside of archaeology? We talk about the difficulty of archaeology, but then we dig into how do you do an archaeological dig? Like, you know, how do you choose a location? Like, whose laws do you abide by? Who gets to keep the artifacts after you're done with it? Uh, the imprecision of archaeology. Uh, we also dig into some of the holy grails of, of Christian archaeology, the things we haven't found yet, you know, how Christians should feel about archaeology overall, some of the traditions that we believe that don't actually have a backing. But then whenever we really start digging into his latest book, Excavating the Evidence for Jesus, we dig broadly— into the most important question in all of eternity, which is, did Jesus, you know, was he resurrected from the dead? And then we look at how archaeology can kind of put together some of the pieces and go against some of the arguments that would convince people that, no, that actually didn't happen. But then we also talk about something that I, I super wanted to talk to him about, but Jesus clearing the temple and the archaeological evidence and historical evidence that that didn't just happen once, guys, that happened twice. So when you talk about Jesus clearing the temple, we always talk about it in this singular fashion, but we have plenty of evidence to suggest that that happened at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, but also at the end. We talked about the date for Christmas. We do, you know, uh, what would what would you say to someone that said, we, we did a bunch of great stuff in this particular interview. And guys, this guy is an academic. This is uh, somebody that has spent a lot of his uh, time writing and researching and doing the really difficult work of archaeology. But I think we stayed, you know, at a 30,000 foot view enough to where we could really, really dig in. Guys, if you want to get the books, they will be in the show notes. So you can go in and, uh, even further, but I really, really enjoyed my time with him today. So guys, without further ado, let's get into it. Titus Kennedy, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Hey, thank you, Kyle. So we need to start out from the very, very beginning because I think this is a record. This is like a brand new experience for me. You're an archaeologist and I've never talked to one of those things, but I just need to get something out of the, out of the way from the very, very beginning. I need you to admit this. You just wanted to become an archaeologist because of Indiana Jones. Just say it. Just say it to everybody right now so that we can like have something to build upon for the rest of our time today. I don't know if I should say I wish that were true, but Indiana Jones wasn't even my intro to archaeology. So, you know, he can't take credit for all that. Okay, so I guess let, let's start there then. How does someone even become an archaeologist? And I guess for you specifically, why did you decide, yep, that's my path. I want to do that. 
Yeah, when I was in elementary school, I really liked history. That was maybe my favorite subject, definitely one of my favorites. Uh, but I had no idea that archaeology existed. Hmm. Nobody, nobody taught me that. I didn't really read about it in any of my books. But then in fourth grade, my teacher gave me this book on the city of Troy and the excavation of Troy, which was one of the early major archaeological projects. And so I read that, and that was my introduction to archaeology, and I found out that, oh, this is one of the places where we get historical information from, from people actually going out, finding these locations, and then digging into the ground and exposing the buildings and recovering artifacts. It wasn't just a bunch of old records, written records that were handed down and recopied. There's actually new information coming out from archaeology. So I thought that was really cool very interested in history and ancient history and then biblical history too. And uh, my dad gave me some books on archaeology connected to the Bible later on. And I started to understand that there is a ton from archaeology that connects to the Bible that shows the historical reliability of different biblical books. And I got really interested in that in particular. And by the end of high school, I decided Maybe I want to try to study this and see where it goes. So I studied archaeology in, uh, in college, in my undergrad, and uh, along with other subjects. But, and that's when I first volunteered for a dig, too. And I just kept doing that and decided I want to keep trying to go forward with this master's degree, doctorate, doing lots of excavations, working in the field. So that's, that's kind of how I got to where I am. Well, I appreciate that detail, and we're certainly going to get going to get way more into archaeology and the Bible and those different things. But I kind of set it up there with the Indiana Jones question. I'm sure there are a lot of misperceptions about archaeologists. I'm assuming you're not running around, you know, saving the girl and shooting people and running away from big rocks and things like that in caves or all that. But I guess what are the most common misperceptions about what you do for work? Well, if we're talking about how Indiana Jones portrays archaeology, most of the time in those movies. He is running around to different locations and taking artifacts, you know, or, or like hunting them down that other people have acquired them. Almost none of the, the movies show any kind of actual excavation. You know, there, there's an excavation in the first movie where he jumps in there. It's actually somebody else's excavation and they go and they like explore this underground room and he, he grabs this artifact, but that's not, that's generally not what archaeology is like. So we we were out there trying to find sites, doing systematic kind of grid style surveys, using technology now more you know more technology, satellite imagery, drones, laser scanning, things like that. And then we're digging there in the dirt for long hours, for many days and weeks, and you're not always finding something awesome. So it's not like constant excitement. But, you know, at the end of the day, when you do find something, that's that's the payoff. So with that payoff, there there are a lot of difficulties, as you basically described there. It has to be incredibly difficult to do archaeological work in ancient cities because these all aren't always in the the best countries that just love when Americans and other Westerners come, you know, poking around in their sandbox. But I guess take us through the process 
of an archaeological dig or excavation? I mean, I just, I have so many questions. Like, how do you choose a location? Like, how big is the team? Like, how long do you plan to be there? You know, whose laws do you abide by? You know, who pays for it? You know, who gets to keep the artifacts that they're found? You know, take it wherever you want to go. Yeah. So the first thing is, how do you even begin an archaeological project? And, you know, that, that starts kind of in the research phase with, well, what maybe what site hasn't been excavated yet or hasn't been located. You're maybe you're interested in a particular region. And so you might go through what's published, you know, uh, records that have been done and see, Oh, you know, here's a site that somebody found before, or someone noticed like some pottery on the ground in this area. And so you decide to take a team out there and you do a survey and you look to see if you can find, any new sites in that area where there's there's some pottery on the ground, there's some artifacts, maybe there's some some ruins that you can see parts of walls popping up over the ground, and you decide, okay, maybe maybe I want to dig this now. Uh, it, in certain areas where we have a lot more historical texts, and for example, with the Bible, you have a lot of locations that are mentioned, and and oftentimes in relation to other cities, towns, villages, even geography, you know, rivers, mountains, lakes, and so forth. So you can kind of figure out generally where some of these places are. Sometimes the ancient names are preserved into modern languages, like uh, in the Middle East, oftentimes the, the ancient names have been preserved in some form in Arabic. So it, it might be a form of the name that was used during Roman times, or it might even go all the way back to like Canaanite times. So that, that can help too. Uh, well, once you kind of decide, all right, I want to dig here, then you need to go and get a permit. And that is done through the government of whatever country the site is in. So they, they have control of the archeological site and you know, related to the question that you asked previously, like who gets to keep the artifacts? So now all, all the artifacts belong to the country in which they were excavated. It doesn't matter who dug them up. It doesn't matter who paid for it. That's the antiquities law now. And, you know, it was it was changed some decades ago before it was it was a little different, but that's how it is now. Gotcha. And so, um, one thing as that's part of this whole process, and I've heard this kind of said about archaeology as a, opposed to some of the other uh, sciences or the other disciplines, is that archaeology can be very imprecise when people want precision. So, uh, you know, an archaeologist might say, "Yes, you know, this piece of pottery or this whatever can be dated to," and then they give this in this huge date range in terms of what we say today. Cause you know, if you were to say, you know, pick some big news topic and say, Hey, that happened on this date. And we've got 10,000 tweets and all these other different stories. We know exactly when it happened, exactly when that speech was given all of that. But obviously we, we didn't have the internet back then. We didn't have television. We didn't have Twitter, you know, two, three, 4,000 years ago, something like that. But what would you say to people that are like, Hey, archaeology is just, it's kind of a crapshoot. They're, they're just kind of throwing a dart up against the board. Yeah, I mean that's that's valid in many cases. So we can't, we we shouldn't overemphasize some of the evidence from archaeology. Like if you have one piece of pottery, as you said, that can have a big date range. Even if we can identify it as it's this specific type of pottery that was made during this period, it might be a one hundred year period, right? So we cannot say like, 
oh, this was from 323 BC, you know, unless we have a lot of other information that tells us that. So coins are a lot more precise. If we're looking at things from the time of the Romans or say Alexander the Great, some of the, the early, uh, some of the later Greeks, then they often did put years on their coins, years of a, a particular king or ruler's reign. And so with a, with a constructed historical chronology, you can kind of pinpoint like, here's a date. But yeah, there, there is imprecision to it and there is interpretation. I mean, we're excavating, we're excavating a small percentage of what's actually there. And then so much has been destroyed and lost over time too. That, that we're looking at a fraction of the original. So you, you try to reconstruct that. It's kind of like a detective, but we're looking at something in the very distant past. And so we need to pull together a lot of different evidence in order to, to come to a solid conclusion rather than just like one little piece. Okay, this is exactly what happened. Yeah, I would agree with that because obviously you have to cover a multitude of different issues and, and ways of approaching something, and that lends credence to the conclusions that you might draw, which really gets us into the whole world of Christians and archaeology. Um, because I know some Christians that are very, very hesitant to think of anything that is outside the Bible as being something that should be a part of their faith. So it's if it's not in the actual scriptural canon, if it's not in the Bible that they have sitting on their desk at home, they don't want to listen to it. They don't want to listen to science. They don't want to listen to history. They don't want to listen to archaeology. But from your perspective, how should Christians feel about and view archaeology? I mean, should they be scared of it? Should they be excited about it? Because to, to be honest, for me, like, you would think if Christianity was all just a bunch of fables and myths and things like that, and these people didn't even exist, and certainly not in that part of the world, then you would think that every year with new archaeological discoveries, the Bible would become less and less relevant, less and less important, and be deemed less and less accurate. And we see the exact opposite. So I, I don't really understand why Christians are so potentially you know, fearful of it. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. So I think some question the sciences or archaeology which is sort of a historical science but they do so because of the the interpretations or the conclusions of some people and some certainly do use biology or physics or paleontology archaeology to say like the bible isn't true this didn't happen this is just all fairy tales <clears throat> but i think People need to understand there's a, there's a difference between someone's conclusions or interpretations and the actual data itself. And, and this really is, a, it's a huge problem in archaeology and, and in hard sciences because people are often looking at, say, like an article in a newspaper or even, even an archaeological excavation report. And they go and they read through some of it and they get, they get to the end. And the author says, this is, this is the conclusion of what happened or, or what this means. <clears throat> but that conclusion doesn't necessarily follow from the data. And, and this is why within archaeology, even archaeology having nothing to do with the Bible, different scholars are always in discussions, disagreements, arguments, because they might be interpreting the data differently. So you, if you're saying... I don't want to listen to archaeology because it's 
rejecting the Bible or something like that. Well, it depends on on which archaeologist you're talking to. And again, this is an issue of what what is the source of authority? Is it is it one person's conclusions or is it the data? Or, you know, if we're talking about in the case of Christianity, is it the Bible? Yeah, I think that that's very important. And I, I always encourage Christians to to look at things. Well, I guess we'll talk about this then. How should Christians approach specifically ancient writings that are not part of the biblical canon, but point to some sort some of the truths that are described in scripture? So I'm thinking specifically of Tacitus or Josephus or any of these types of people. These are not Christians. None of these people came from a Christian worldview. We don't know them to be Christians, but they wrote things that really substantiate some of the claims that are made in the Bible. And it helps people to not be able to just wave their hand and be like, oh, the Bible, it's all, it's all whatever. We can't even trust it. We don't even have the originals. We can't even trust that these stories actually happen. But when people that didn't have a dog in the fight, that were not Christians to begin with, write some of the things that coincide directly with what we see in scripture, that's a good thing, right? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think those texts are helpful. I think that when reading those, people just need to understand the different perspectives of different authors. So we, we talk about Kelsis, for example. Well, what is he doing? He's His main objective is actually to attack Christianity and make fun of it or say that its its claims are illegitimate. But what what is he also doing? He's also acknowledging certain things, like he's acknowledging the existence of Jesus. He's acknowledging that Jesus was born in a village of Judea, He's acknowledging that Jesus's earthly father was a carpenter and that there is some weird thing going on with, you know, the pregnancy. He knows about the story of the virgin birth. He just doesn't agree with it. He knows Jesus went to Egypt as a child, but he thinks Jesus got his miraculous powers by going to Egypt. And then he knows that he went back and performed miracles and proclaimed himself God. He just doesn't believe that Jesus is, is the one God. So you have to understand where he's coming from and then kind of like separate the what are the facts that he knows about from what is his view of Jesus sort of in a theological sense. And I think a lot of people, again, if you can describe it, even without the theology, that's still important to describe things that are happening at that time. And I want to hear from the people that know the story. They know the story to be true, but they just uh, I guess they don't believe in some of the parts of it or they can't get themselves to that next level of resurrection or something like that. Now, one thing I was, as I was preparing this interview, I'm like, okay, this might be one of my favorite questions because I don't really know what I would say, but I, without being trying to be punny, what are the holy grails of Christian archaeology that we haven't found yet? Like, what are the biggest mysteries still unsolved? What are the biggest people groups or the things that we're pretty sure are somewhere on this planet? We just haven't found it yet. Are there parts of the, you know, do you think the Sahara Desert has a whole bunch of secrets because, you know, climate change has, you know, moved the sand around and now we don't know where all these people are? Like, what are the holy grails for Christian archaeology specifically? I would say in at least the the popular kind of mainstream, we would have a few objects or things like the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, that that would be something huge of immense interest that everybody's always wondering where where could that be? Or, you know, this person claimed they found it, but we haven't seen it. You think it's going to be found? Another could be. Uh, Noah's Ark. Again, that is one where people are always looking for it. There's always something coming up where a person claimed, oh yeah, we found it. And then, you know, it comes out later that that's not what it was. But 
there's all sorts of things like that. So, you know, those, those two would be really big, but there's, there's ones that aren't maybe talked about as much that would also be really historically important, like some inscription from, from the life of Jesus that mentions him, you know, while he was still alive on earth or say, uh, so, something like Joseph. Okay. Uh, some kind of Egyptian text or inscription that that talks about Joseph and specifies him by name and some of the things that he did, or or even Moses. Okay, so the farther we go back in history, the the less records, the less material generally we have, and it's it's hard to or unlikely to find things for people like that. It's more likely to find things belonging to kings, you know, like <clears throat> King Solomon. Okay. We actually right now don't have an inscription mentioning King Solomon from his time. Uh, we do have a couple that refer to, to David from the ninth century BC, but we haven't yet found one about Solomon. I think that's something that definitely will be found in the future, and it, it would be big. But you know, these these other ones are more often talked about. Yeah, there's certainly more talked about. And I mean, any of those would be really, really important. And I think that would be great for Christians to know those things and understand those things are happening. But what what are some, I guess, common traditions or norms that Christians believe in that aren't actually true according to the archaeological evidence? And I was trying to think of an example before this, but I know you kind of have some, but there are things that we as Christians, it was kind of like when you hear a Christian uh, quote a scripture, but they do it incompletely or poorly, or they provide no context. And it's like, okay, that's just a scripture for a coffee mug. That's not actually what you're trying to say. But are there some things that, that most Christians believe to be true, but that archeologically are, there's no evidence for it? I would say one that comes up a lot is people's idea of the manger in the nativity story. Mm -hmm. Usually it's thought of as this wooden object, but in reality, the way that they made mangers during that time was by carving them out of limestone. Right, and stone. We have a lot of those, so that you know that's kind of one thing. I don't know if it's a it's a major thing, but it, but it is sort of out there in popular culture. Well, well, Titus, it's because stones are really heavy to carry to our front yards, like for Christmas time. Like we can we can set up the nativity, you know, wooden box a little easier. Oh yeah, that that's true. It may have been a factor. Yeah. So are there others uh, aside from maybe the, the nativity that, that are kind of common? Uh, well, there's a lot of stuff that swirls around the internet, I think, about what's been found supposedly that connects to the Bible. And I would say those are some, some common misperceptions. You know, one of the big ones we already talked about, like Noah's Ark. Okay. There constantly are these claims that Noah's Ark has been found and yet it it still has not i don't know if it ever will be it's made of wood and landed on a mountain a long long time ago so but uh another one is like the the chariot wheels of pharaoh's army in somewhere in the red sea right you know that one swirls a lot around a lot too but there's those those have never been found either um other other misperceptions um not a big deal, but I think that when people read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and they read about some of these cities, and they think that they're huge, right? Because they're mm -hmm. looking at it from a 21st century perspective. But these places were actually really small in terms of surface area and population compared to 
the cities today. So there's there's stuff like that. You know, there's living conditions. There's literacy rates. Um, I would say yeah, most of the time it's it's smaller details like that. Okay. Um, now I'm about to talk some about something that is obviously a major, major detail, but there is a segment. I mean, early on in this podcast, I talked about, this is one of like the first episode. I think it was one of our single digit episodes back in like 2016 or 2017, something like that was that there are honestly a group of people in modernity that think Jesus of Nazareth never existed. Not that he wasn't the son of God, not that he didn't heal people, not that, you know, he didn't actually rise from the dead or any of those things, that he never existed, that he is completely a figment of historical myth, that there's no evidence to suggest that the man actually existed. So for you specifically, obviously you've spent a lot of time really going into this and, and we'll get into the new book here in a second, which details it even further. But what do you have to say to people who fervently and honestly believe that? Because I mean, sometimes like I've never ran into someone like that in, in person, but seeing these people online, I would just be like, if, if they were in front of me, I'd be like, do you think that Julius Caesar existed? Do you think that he crossed the Rubicon? Because there's way more evidence to suggest that Jesus exists and rose from the dead than that Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon. So help me understand. So you give me some help here. Yeah, I would probably say two things. Uh, the first is that they should read some of the first and century, second century writings non-Christian writings, writings outside of the Bible that talk about Jesus, that mention him and specific events in his life. And then secondarily, that there really aren't any scholars in the field of ancient history and archaeology that, that deal with the Middle East or, or biblical studies, New Testament time period and so forth, that would say there's no evidence that Jesus existed. That That's just not a thing in academia. Now, they have different views about exactly what Jesus was like and what he said and what he did and so forth, because many scholars don't take the Gospels as reliable historical accounts, but they're not actually saying Jesus didn't exist because we have so much evidence, really, that he did exist, even even not counting the New Testament. Yeah, it's just one of those things where it's like it almost doesn't dignify a response, but you should just ask questions and be like, okay, how did you get to whatever age that you are right now? And you believe silly things like that. But again, it, that that could be an opportunity for you to educate that person a little bit. But we do need to get to the new book. This is a book that you wrote this year. It's called Excavating the Evidence for Jesus. So we're so thankful that you sent this over to our team. Guys, it is in the show notes also with this first book, Unearthing the Bible. But this is a broad question, and I realized that from the very beginning here. But this is potentially the most important question that I could ask you today, and it's how does archaeology help prove the resurrection? Because, Titus, some of the common objections we get is that the disciples stole the body. Uh, Jesus didn't actually die. He swooned, as it were. Uh, his disciples all hallucinated somehow at the same time, uh, only time in recorded history that's ever happened. But how does archaeology specifically prove the resurrection, which is the key point of the entire Christian faith? I think archaeology can give us insight into whether the, the resurrection happened. I don't think it can prove it. I don't think that anything can definitively 100% prove it. But archaeology can, can provide a couple of things here. Uh, if, we, if we look at archaeology in terms of excavating different sites, uh, recovering ancient inscriptions, translating those, uh, recovering ancient manuscripts, artifacts, things like that, then 
then we've got a few different sources. So first of all, we were talking about different writers from antiquity that mentioned Jesus. Uh, we do have mention outside of the Bible, and Josephus is the, the clearest passage on this one, where it is reported that Jesus's disciples saw him alive three days after the crucifixion. That's, that's what Jesus, Josephus says. He doesn't say that he necessarily believes that the resurrection happened, but he he's aware of the reports of it, and he, he says that, okay? So people know about it in the first century. It's spread widely, and that's a, that's an important thing to keep in the back of our mind, that it's, it's knowledge that's already out there, okay? So second thing is that the, the Romans issued this edict. It, it seems to be from Emperor Claudius, who began his reign in 41 AD. Uh, he sent this edict, and what we have of that edict is because it was inscribed on stone and seems to have been set up in the middle of a town square so everybody could read it. Uh, this is called the Nazareth inscription because it was found in Nazareth, or at least it was acquired on the antiquities market there, but probably came from there or nearby. And it basically says that there's this new law, a new, a new death penalty, actually, for anyone who violates this very specific thing. And it's, it's pretty strange. And the thing that they have to do is break into a stone-sealed tomb and then steal the body with some wicked intent behind it, all right? It's not about stealing grave goods, you know, items that actually have value. And it's, it's not about, like, desecrating a cremation or, or even, you know, desecrating a body. It's a very specific type of tomb, the same type of tomb that Jesus was buried in. Now, you know, other people in that region and period were buried in these types of tombs, but it, it really goes and targets in particular that the body then is taken out of the tomb and there is some ul ulterior motive behind this. And if we look at Matthew 28, 11 through 15, we see that this is what the Roman soldiers were told to say and to spread that the disciples stole the body of Jesus and they, you know, then they made up this story. Okay. So that tells us the Romans that seem to be aware of this, this story also. Hmm. And they would have been looking to disprove that and shut it down. And they, they weren't able to by that point when this edict was issued. So instead there's a really harsh penalty that is given to, you know, stop people from doing anything like that again or, or discourage uh, spreading of this story. The other thing archaeology can do is it can show us that there was, in fact, a tomb. And so we, we know where the tomb was and people knew where it was since the time of Jesus. And that, that, no, that we know it was empty. It was empty. They were, they were able to investigate that tomb. And so you got to ask, okay, well, where'd the body go? Uh, the Romans are saying the disciples stole it, but they never found it. And the disciples continued to advocate the truth of the resurrection. You know, many, many to their death. We don't know the fate for sure of all of them. But so archaeology can provide some, some evidence towards that. It just, it can't prove it. We can use other methods other fields to build the case 
to make it a really plausible, like most likely outcome uh, from a historical perspective. Well, I appreciate all that detail. Uh, one thing that I try to do, Titus, is I try to steel man uh, the other side anytime I'm looking at doing a debate or looking at some sort of a contentious issue. You know, straw manning isn't helpful. Steel manning is, is where you take the best argument that the other side could produce and then try to knock that down as opposed to, you know, a straw man argument. I try to steel man the explanation, the plausible explanations against the resurrection because it does seem plausible that the Roman soldiers, even though it was their job to, to, you know, at the threat of death, at, you know, consequence of death to guard the, the, the front of the tomb, it's possible they fell asleep. It's possible that the disciples got enough people to move the, the stone away, to be able to get the body, to be able to steal it. it that's possible. Uh, it, but then it's like, okay, so let's say the disciples did do that because this was part of the grand scheme uh, to create, you know, uh, maybe they could create this new world order where they get a bunch of money and women and all these different things. It's like, okay, well, there's still the body out there somewhere, but it's plausible the body could have been hidden so well that no one ever found it, right? That's plausible. But then I can't, like, what's the plausibility of hundreds of people saying they saw Jesus resurrected, not spiritually, but bodily a few days later? What is the plausible explanation for how, Christianity even survived the first century? What's the plausible explanation for none of the apostles or none of the disciples recanting their faith in what they saw in Jesus before they died, even though that would have made headlines, uh, certainly with with the Josephus or anybody else? Like, help me, help me steal, man, it, because it's like, I want to give the other side their due. I get it that some people just don't believe in that, but it's like, what else do you need to see? Like, what what is a good, plausible explanation for the resurrection not having happened. Right. And all that stuff you said builds the, the argument of it. Um, and, and we can say that certain things are possible, even though they're so incredibly unlikely, such as the Roman soldiers falling asleep and not waking up when somebody goes there. I mean, it's yeah, like, how are you going to move a stone that big quietly? They, they would have to drug them. Right. Okay. Yeah. So this, it's this extremely elaborate, conspiracy which they're all willing to go to their deaths for and and it involves hundreds of people but nobody ever changes the story and no one bails on it and yeah that's just it doesn't make sense so there's there's other explanations that people have offered uh of course like one that he wasn't actually dead but that's not it's not plausible because of the process of crucifixion and the things that Roman soldiers always did to make sure the person was dead. Uh, I've even read one where there was this uh, a resuscitation theory. Like, we can't explain it, but he just resuscitated on his own, right? So th- that's like a medical anomaly, okay? <laughs> yeah. That's basically saying that he resurrected, but it's, it's trying to remove anything having to do with the supernatural. Or miraculous from it even though the the effect is the same essentially so um i think the the main issue really is that there is an assumption that the supernatural doesn't exist that miracles don't happen can't happen so people coming from a viewpoint of of scientific materialism naturalism they're not going to be able to accept as possible a supernatural or miraculous event and so right. then then you just you come to an impasse there because you can show 
that the resurrection is is the most likely explanation with all these different things that we've talked about and more but but if someone is completely set that it's impossible for a miracle to happen that the supernatural does not exist then they have to come up with another explanation even if it's it's a medical anomaly he just resuscitated somehow hung out in the tomb for a couple of days and then somebody moved it and he got out and disappeared and they said that he was resurrected so again I want to see the other side here because it's the most important question that a human being can reckon with, right? Because I talk to, you know, atheists and agnostics all the time. It's like, well, if you're right and I'm wrong, well, we're, we're both worm food at the end of the day. Like I would have just like ended up wasting a lot of time and money on this whole Christian thing the entire time. But if you're wrong and you never like really tangle with this question, like it's your entire eternity. But like, and again, this is going to seem like weak tea, but is it possible, Titus, that they thought Jesus was dead? There was a medical anomaly. He's placed in the tomb, but then he does live. He survives crucifixion, which would make him one of very few people to ever survive crucifixion because the whole point of crucifixion was to kill you. Uh, And the Romans just happened to be amazing at it. Is it plausible that he was all beat up and torn up and scarred up and all that and just nobody wrote about it? So they saw him, you know, three days later or something like that. And nobody, they all failed to mention that his body was completely torn and tattered. Uh, But again, even as I'm saying it out loud, it sounds so stupid because they didn't talk about it as if Jesus survived. They talk about it as if he resurrected. Like those are two completely separate things. Right. Well, I mean, even the Roman records that talk about it, uh, talk about the crucifixion of Jesus, that he was crucified and he died. None of, none of them say anything about how he survived or he might have survived. There, there was no dispute in antiquity about that part of it. So it was, it was just the other side would say that he didn't resurrect. It was a made-up story. So, you know, in, in, again, in today's world, we've got more viewpoints, maybe more explanations, alternative explanations. But for an issue like this, it really comes down to worldview and whether or not you accept that the supernatural exists or doesn't you know because if it doesn't then that stuff can't happen right you can't there's not an allowance for that to happen if you do accept that the supernatural exists then then miracles can happen they don't have to they don't have to all the time but it's possible and that that is just something that you can't prove with archaeological material or or even historical arguments really i mean you can again you can look through what seems the most rational the most plausible the most likely and so forth but at the end of the day some of these things are just going to come down to what people's worldview is what they accept as uh, as reality and these people, at, at some point, they want their worldview to be validated. They want the their deeply held beliefs to be found plausible, if not completely true. And again, this goes against everything because, again, if you believe in the resurrection, if you believe that a Middle Eastern Jew, you know, was killed by the Romans at the behest of the Jewish Sanhedrin, like that change, that's going to require some changes of you. 
right? So you're not going to be able to continue doing the things that you're doing in the way that you're doing them. It's going to require a lot of you. So I'm glad you spent basically an entire book, you know, excavating the evidence for Jesus and digging into the archaeology and the history around literally the most important thing. And the entire book's not about the resurrection. You talk about a lot of other things, guys, we can't possibly get into all the detail here in this, this podcast, but the evidence is there. So when people are unsure about the resurrection, typically the people that are unsure about it have not spent a whole lot of time looking into it. And, you know, there are plenty of books. There's your book. There's uh, evidence that demands a verdict. There's There are other books that have gone into a great amount of detail as to everything that's gone around here. And they come at it from the perspective of we're on a truth quest here. We're not trying to steal man our side of the argument. So I really appreciate you going into all that detail in your book. Another thing that you talked about in the book, and this is a major thing for me because I remember hearing this, uh, you know, uh, maybe about a year ago or so, is one of my favorite story in all of the gospels is Jesus clearing the temple. Cause on this podcast, we don't just uh, talk about the lion and uh, the lamb of God. We talk about the lion of Judah. That's why we have this whole concept of like, this was righteous, premeditated, violent aggression perpetrated by our savior, which is to say that that is going to be appropriate for us as followers at different points to be able to act in that way. It's just a different view of Jesus than what you would normally see in, in how most people depict him. But most people think that he just did that once that he cleared the temple and they talk about that as a singular event. And I remember about a year ago, I saw a single post where someone was like, no, this actually happened twice. And they kind of provided an explanation, but it wasn't really a, a big time website. And I wasn't really sure if this was just somebody spouting off on a blog. And then the second time I heard an argument for that was in your book that no, like Jesus didn't just clear the temple once. There seems to be a considerable amount of evidence that he cleared it at the beginning of his ministry and at the end. So this wasn't a one-time whoopsie daisy. I got mad and, you know, made a whip and, you know, scared some people that this was something that he did on purpose and did it twice. Would you mind kind of giving us a, a 30,000 foot overview as to why you and other people believe this happened more than once? Yeah, sure. So in the, the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have the clearing of the temple episode during the final week of Jesus's life. So that's, that's the one that most people are thinking about. But in John, we have a totally different account of it. So it actually occurs near the beginning of the book of John. And it, John doesn't have it later on during, during the Passion Week. So some, some people have said, oh, John it doesn't have anything in chronological order. He just throws this stuff around thematically and so forth, which... I don't think that reading through John's gospel, that's at all correct. Uh, he, you know, he starts out with the incarnation. He starts out with Jesus in ministry. He goes through, he does different miracles. He gets in trouble with the religious leaders and that results in them trying to arrest him. And then we go through, you know, the whole trial and everything. So, but <clears throat> there, you know, there's more that we could talk about because in John chapter 2, where this appears, there are some interesting chronological markers where the, the Pharisees are, are talking to Jesus around the time of this first cleansing of the temple. And also, you know, the baptism of Jesus is close in context to this too, so beginning of his ministry. But they talk about how the, the temple has been under construction or or was was constructed during this period of you know 46 years so that that gives us a, an actual date ad to look at 
and and it puts this event somewhere in like 27 28 AD probably because we know when the the construction on Herod's temple started uh now that's that's quite a bit earlier than anyone would put the crucifixion of Jesus right so 33 AD is pretty standard date now for the crucifixion but there, there's still some people who would prefer like a 30 AD but but if we're looking at like 27 or 28 AD well then this is this is much earlier than that and this is near the beginning of his ministry it's near his baptism and so that stuff tells us this is a separate event I mean there's some other details in there where you can notice a little bit of differences between the two of course it's very similar but yeah one's one's at the beginning one's at the end John obviously has a lot of different content than the other three gospels and and this is one of those things that he puts in as supplementary material. I certainly appreciate you getting into that detail because that, again, that changes a lot for people to understand that this was a very, very important uh, part of his ministry. And it was something that they didn't keep out of the gospel accounts of his life. Another thing that I want to talk about that you get into in the book, and again, guys, there's just not, it's not even possible to scratch the surface on everything in the book. You're gonna have to go get it in the show notes and check it out for yourself. But we're in the Christmas season right now. And so I feel like I need to ask you about the date of Christmas, because a lot of people that are not Christians, or they just love being contrarians, they love to point out that there's nothing significant about December the 25th. And this actually aligns with a pagan holiday and Christmas trees in and of themselves. Those are like Satan's fingernails like you know they've got all kinds of crazy things they want to say about christmas and the whole time period but let's just talk about christmas and the date of christmas why do we celebrate christmas on december the 25th and is it just a holiday that has to do with like the winter solstice and somehow we sprinkled some jesus over the top of it and then later on we got a fat guy with a white beard and a red suit how did we get to this uh we celebrated on december 25th because that's where the earliest christians the earliest accounts place the birth approximately you know it it's it's not a christianized pagan holiday it's actually the opposite case so the the christians were placing the birth of jesus in late december about december 25th but then later on some roman polytheist pagans they decided to put a new celebration, a new pagan celebration there. Now we can go back to the second century really, and then the third century also. So all this is before Christianity was legalized. And we see in writings of the church fathers, things like not only was the, the date thought to be December 25th, but they, they even talk about the conception of Jesus, March 25th. So jumping ahead nine months there. So there, you can see it from, from both of those angles there. And if we read these texts, we also, we don't get the impression that there's this big celebration or big party. It's just something that is mentioned in passing in terms of this is what with the information we have about when Jesus was conceived and when Jesus was born. And, and some even uh, try to connect that with the, the celebration of, of Passover, like his birth or, you know, around Passover somewhere in there. So uh, there, you know, there's some theological underpinnings, at least in some of the writings, but there's definitely early attestation of this December 25th date. But if you fast forward then to after Christianity is legalized in the Roman Empire, and so it becomes more open and public, right? And there, there's some Christian emperors 
in this early phase, but there's also some pagan ones. So there's there's some pushback from these pagan ones. And uh, one of the things that happens is that uh, Aurelian, Emperor Aurelian, he decides to institute this this new celebration in yeah the winter solstice, like you mentioned, for Sol Invictus. Okay, so this this doesn't happen though until a couple of hundred years after our earliest source for for December twenty fifteen, the birth of Jesus, and and this is actually a Roman pattern, typical Roman pagan pattern, where they try to supplant Christianity with something pagan, uh, where they, they either try to syncretize it or put something pagan over it. Uh, if you go to Jerusalem, for example, or Bethlehem also, you can see that em- Emperor Hadrian had pagan shrines and temples built over locations that were key historic spots in the life of Jesus, like over the cave of the nativity or over the pool of Siloam and the pool of Bethesda and over the tomb of Jesus. So all this was it was an attempt to suppress or, or get rid of Christianity or you know just kind of merge it into Roman paganism and th- that's the same kind of thing that we have with the whole Christmas idea. So it was it was the Christians who put that date forward first. It wasn't a huge deal, and then later on, after Christianity was more legalized and publicly known, that one of the pagan emperors tried to cover that up. There you go, guys. So if you get into that fight with that same cousin or that same person at the water cooler that tries to tell you that this is a pagan holiday, you just say all that, that he just said, throw on some glasses and a nice jacket and say that to them. But again, like I said, it's a fantastic book. I did want to read the final quote of the book because I do think it really summarized a lot of your work that you put into it. And again, there's so many citations and all that. It's really, really a dense work. Rather than a mythical character, Jesus of Nazareth is actually one of the most widely attested personalities in antiquity, and the narratives in the Gospels have been confirmed as historically reliable accounts by ever-increasing archaeological discoveries. Although Jesus only walked those paths until AD 33 and was unjustly executed in a tiny province on the fringes of the empire, knowledge of his life and teaching rapidly spread across the vast Roman world and beyond. Centuries later, the ancient ruins, artifacts, and manuscripts continue to tell the incredible story. And again, I really think that that's the point, Titus, is that if the history were wrong, history and archaeology work together. Obviously, they're fairly simpatico. You you established that from the very beginning here. But with every year that passed by, with every era of archaeology, because archaeology is still relatively uh, a new discipline, we would see things disproven about the Bible, and we only see the opposite. Because we thought at different points, we don't have to get into any examples, that there were these archaeological discoveries that are like, you see, that disproves this part of the Old Testament, so the entire book can't be seen as infallible, only to discover five years later, 20 years later, another discovery actually goes back and usurps that one and says, actually, this was legit and this was good to go. I guess before we leave to the to the last segment of the show, how could Christians that are maybe interested in archaeology but don't have time to you know really go to school and study it and be a part of that? How can we stay up to date on the archaeological evidence that we've seen? Because it wasn't until like a lot of people in my audience they didn't even know about this stuff until I had Eric Metaxas on the show last year for his book "Is Atheism Dead?" and like a third of that book is just about archaeology. So what, what, how can we stay up on it? Cause I don't know. Is there like archaeology in the Bible.com or like, how can we stay on? 
Yeah, I mean, there, there are some, some organizations and websites out there that are continuously publishing material or doing projects. And of course, there's, there's books that are written. So yeah, I would say do some, some research online to, to find some good organizations that are really looking at the Bible from a historical archaeological perspective, search, you know, for books on some of this stuff, look, look into who the authors are to see what their worldview is, their preconceived notions, their experience and so forth, because some are going to be good and some are not going to be. Uh, and, and I would also just say exercise discernment because sometimes pretty grandiose or confident claims are made about certain things one way or the other, whether it's, hey, we just discovered Noah's Ark, or hey, this this discovery proves the Bible never happened or something. Uh, so look, you know, look in, look into those things, use critical thinking. And yeah, you, you maybe you're not going to be an, an expert in the field, but everybody's able to at least exercise some critical thinking and ba- basic research and figure out figure out the, the general story and, and the main points. With that, I think it's important to to kind of get into, okay, what does the future look like? Not just for you, but, well, I guess we'll, we'll make it with you. What what are the future uh, digs that you're going to be a part of? What are the future projects that you have coming up that could potentially be of interest to us? So in the past, I've excavated and done survey projects at several different sites, and I've kind of focused on both the period of Jesus, but also on kind of like Exodus conquest, Joshua judges period too. Um, I'm, I'm interested in maybe going into a different period and kind of expanding my firsthand experience with some other. So, you know, I'm looking at maybe going to do a site in Jordan possibly and looking in the earlier periods. So kind of more like where, when the patriarchs live. Uh, I've, I've also done some excavation in Armenia recently, and I'm, I'm interested in exploring some of that with going back to really, really early times, like the, the dawn of civilization type of thing, and maybe fill in some blanks where the, the Bible really doesn't talk much about that time between Noah and Abraham, right? So what is there to find in there and and then you know in the future i still have a lot of interest in sites that that connect to things like book of joshua or or exodus even because there's a lot of debate in those areas and so i think that archaeology can not only help us understand the context of what we're reading but it, it can help to solve some of those disputes and yeah, we'll see. Maybe maybe something with uh, connected to the Book of Acts and the Epistles at some point in the future. I'm, I'm interested in a lot of stuff. It's just sort of what projects are available and viable because it's it's not just as easy as, oh, I want to dig at this site. Let's go do that. All right, that sounds good. Well, as long as you keep doing those cool projects and writing books, we'll keep having you on to talk about it. But before we let you go today, I want to do a segment with you that we do with some people on our show. It's called, What Would You Say to Someone That Said? So what I'm going to do, Titus, is I'm going to say, what would you say to someone that said? 
And then I'm going to fill in the blank with some random statement. But here's the thing. It is lightning round. You only get 30 seconds maximum to give me your response. So it's, it sometimes makes some people uncomfortable because I'm kind of putting you in a box here. But no matter what I say, you got to give me a 30 second response to all these different things. So you up for it? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. First one here. Let's see how you do. What would you say to someone that said, I want to become an archaeologist? I would say read some books, first of all, on archaeology to see if, if it really interests you that much. And then go and volunteer on an archaeological excavation to see if you enjoy doing that. Because uh, a lot of people hate that. And I would also suggest maybe going to visit museums and even trying to do some volunteering or internship there. You, you've got to experience the field to see if you actually like it. Absolutely. All right, next one here. What would you say to someone that said, the Indiana Jones movies are awful? <laughs> I think his movies, that they're actually great entertainment, but as a film that depicts archaeology, they're highly inaccurate. So it depends on you know how you're evaluating and judging them. That's one of my uh, more unpopular opinions is I think those movies are atrocious. It's probably because I didn't watch them when they came out because I was a little bit too young. So when you go back and watch them as an adult, you're like, these are just absolute garbage. But we'll move off of that. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said historical historical accounts are filled with lies? I think it depends on what historical accounts we're talking about. Uh, we could We could look at a lot of historical accounts in the ancient world and we could pick out points in those where there is propaganda or they've inserted their worldview that maybe is not justified or supportive, but we can't broad stroke that. Um, I would say that generally historical accounts from antiquity do contain a lot of actual true historical information. And, you know, there may be errors or intentional errors in there, but they've got to be evaluated individually. All right, next one here. What would you say to someone that said archaeology is not a serious academic discipline? <laughs> that would be news to me. Well, we've got we got two aspects of archaeology. We have the, the labor aspect of it, but then we do have what takes up most of the time, and that is the academic discipline. It's researching in the library. It's doing work in the laboratory. It's writing and publishing and constructing arguments and teaching and preparing museum displays. So there, there's a lot of academic type of work that goes into that. There's also science aspect to it. And of course, there's humanities aspect to it also. Not all the sexy stuff that made it into all the Indiana Jones films. All right, next one here. What would you say to someone that said, we don't need archaeology to believe in the Bible. We just need more faith. Well, if you want to have a faith that is based on something, based on evidence and reason, like Peter says in, in 1 Peter 3.15, we should have reasons for what we believe. Now, those reasons can be theological and they can come from the Bible, but they can also be reasons from evidence and evidence that comes external for, to from the scriptures. So I think that we should have legitimate reasons for what we believe, not just like somebody told me this, I read it here, I have a feeling. There's, there's got to be more than that because we do live in reality and God has constructed reality that makes sense and it's organized and we do have the evidence that, that shows the truth of that. So I, I don't think we should just discard all of these things. 
All right, just a few more rapid fire questions here. What would you say to someone that said Jesus never existed? I would say go and look at several writings from the first and second century uh, by non-Christians. Actually, many people are hostile to Christianity and see how they mention that Jesus was a historical character and that some of the things that happened during his life that are also recorded in the Gospels. And that will tell us that, well, in the first and second century, people knew about Jesus and they understood and said he was a historical person. What would you say to someone that said the Bible can't be trusted because we don't have the original manuscripts? I would say that we don't have the original manuscripts for anything, really, not even something as as recent as Shakespeare. But what we do have is demonstration that the, the biblical texts were copied with extreme precision so that they do preserve the original words, you know, down to the letters. And we have evidence of this from things like the Dead Sea Scrolls comparing to later texts or all the hundreds, even thousands of of texts and fragments of the Greek New Testament where it shows how great this copying tradition was. So we we have accurate copies, okay? We don't have the originals. We have accurate copies that reflect what the originals were. All right, Titus, last question of the day. What would you say to someone that said, I believe the archaeological evidence about Jesus, but I still don't think he's the Son of God? I don't think that's one that we can answer from archaeology. I think that you've got to look at the, the Bible and Christianity as a whole, and you've got to see how the Bible has has been shown to be a reliable book from many different perspectives. One of those is the fulfillment of prophecy, which I think that is a marker of divine inspiration and, and gives us uh, evidence of the theological claims in the Bible being true. But ultimately, it's going to be up to a, a person's individual decision on whether or not they're going to accept Jesus as God. Man, I appreciate all the different things that we've been able to talk about today. We've gone over a lot and we, we didn't even, like I said, scratch the surface on most of the work that you've done academically, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? I would just say, encourage people to dig into some of the evidence and know know some of it you know it can help in your understanding of just reading and study but also when when you do encounter questions or or statements by people that you know jesus never existed the bible's been disproven things like this have a few reasons understand that it's helpful to have in discussions and and helpful so you aren't always like questioning in your mind am i crazy is there really Mm -hmm. nothing out there i would certainly co-sign that titus kennedy thank you for coming on undaunted life a man's podcast Hey, thank you for having me. There you go, guys. Hope you enjoyed my interview with Titus Kennedy. But before I let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got a link to both of his books that we talked about today, Excavating the Evidence for Jesus, and then the other one I mentioned in the intro, which is Unearthing the Bible. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it wherever you're listening to this. Please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram. Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness 
Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>